again if you're not there. I know it's a little hot out there. Um, we're hoping to get as many of these canopies as we can for the summer. If you have one, you could loan us for the summer and we'll keep it in the garage here and put it out on Sunday. That would be great. You should also know that we're having some sunshades uh, frames that made that are going to hang some sunshades off that building. Um, hopefully we'll have them up next week or very soon. If you're new with us, we've been going through this book and we're just working our way through it chapter by chapter uh, throughout the summer. Sometimes we come to a passage in, uh, in the Bible where we read something that we really don't like very much. We read something about God and his ways and it just strikes us wrong. It seems unfair. It might even make us kind of angry. And we can't help but kind of judge God as we read it. And when this happens, we have a few options. Uh, we can just ignore it and read on. Uh, we can reject it. We can say, I don't like this part of the Word of God. I hear people do this all the time with the whole Old Testament. They say, oh, that's from the Old Testament. They just reject it. Or they do it with Paul's teaching. Oh, that's the Apostle Paul. It's decide that that's not the Word of God for them. Or we can reinterpret it. We can say, I don't like what it says. It must not say that, that, and we come up with it something else that probably doesn't fit the context, but fits what we like. Or we have an opportunity in that moment to learn and to grow, to be stretched. It can be a moment uh, where we can gain new insight about God and about who we are. And today, I think we come to such a passage. You may have already... Uh, kind of thought about it as, as we read through it. Perhaps you felt a little uncomfortable with part of it. Maybe you didn't notice anything, but you will as we go. But it's an opportunity to learn, so let's take a look. Look at verse 1 with me. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is a big moment for Israel. They've finally been reunited as, as a people before God. For years they've been divided with two different kings, fighting with one another. And we saw last week they all came together, all the tribes united under David as their king. And he's brought them then to a special place for the first time to Jerusalem conquered the Jebusites, kicked them out, took over the city as the city of God, peoples, God's people in Zion, the holy city. And they've now fought off the Philistines, and they're settled in, and they're at peace, at least for a while. And what's the first thing that David knows he must do? Go get the ark. Now, some of the young people here don't know what the Ark of God is because they weren't alive in the 80s when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Or maybe they don't know their Old Testament. The Ark is simply a three-foot, three-foot something by two-foot something by two-foot something acacia wood box with two giant cherubims on the top of it, like this with their wings, and it's completely covered in gold. And to put it simply, it represents God's 
presence with his people. We see this in Exodus 28, in 1 Samuel 4, and right here in this text. God is actually said to rest upon it, his very presence in a tangible way, and it demonstrates some things about him to his people. The first thing it demonstrates is his ruling power. That's why it says in verse 2 here, Uh, that that it's called by the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, who sits enthroned between the cherubims. The God of heavenly armies is enthroned on the ark. In fact, in other passages of Scripture, it says the ark is the footstool of God. And you put them together, all the images, and you kind of see God enthroned in heaven, this massive God with his feet resting on the earth, right on the footstool of his ark. He's surrounded there by his armies. This is the God of ruling power. But it also tells them of his relational promises. It's often referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Promise. God had made promises to his people that he would be their God and they would be his people and they were obligated to obey him. In fact, that the tablets of stone of the Ten Commandments are inside the Ark defining how they are to be his people. So it tells them of God's ruling power. It tells them of his relational promise, but it also tells them of his reconciling heart. The ark was the place where the high priest each year would sprinkle the sacrificial blood for the the atonement of sin of the people. He would sprinkle it onto the ark that they could be made right with God, their Savior. You see, the ark represented everything about Israel's relationship with God. His rule, his promise, his reconciliation, his very real presence amongst them. And the thing is that we need to realize in this moment is that it has been neglected for over seven decades, the ark. For 70 years, Saul had put it away in a little town. It was basically all but forgotten. Saul didn't want to think about God as king because he was king. And now it's being brought back. And it's a big deal. And you know, this is a lesson in itself. The Israelites cannot be sustained merely by the unity that comes from common crisis fighting off the Jebusites, fighting off the Philistines. They must first and foremost be about the worship of God. And it's the same with the church today. We can get all pumped up with adrenaline with some current moral or ethical or political issue going on in our culture and kind of unite to fight against it. And it may be necessary, but that can't be what sustains us. That cannot be our life. It must always be the praise and worship of God. The latest cause must never efface worship. And if we get this backwards, it's like coming off the adrenaline high. You just drop down and you got nothing. Our life must be sustained in worship. So David is bringing the ark back to the center of God's people. And it's a big deal. Note how in verse 1, how many of the chosen men of Israel, that's the troops, that usually refers to the armies, how many of them were involved in this relocation of the ark? How many does it say? First verse. 30,000. 
we've seen this, this phrase, the, 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 uh, the chosen men of Israel, the troops, a couple other times when they've come to fight. And each time they've had groups of 3,000. This is 10 times that just to move the ark. And then look at verse 5. And David and all the house of, all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. All the house of Israel. That, that sounds like all of them, doesn't it? Sounds like all the people coming out. In a massive worship scene, the ark of God being brought along the road to Jerusalem with the troops parading alongside it and all the people crowding in and breaking forth in song and praising God with merriment and instruments and voice. You know, every time you see a list of instruments like you see here, it's in the context of corporate worship. Just look at the Psalms. It's a huge outdoor worship service. A little bit like this outdoor worship service, just add a couple hundred thousand people and a lot of tambourines and everything else, and maybe we process through the city and you get a fill. It's a giant, joyous, rocking worship celebration as it should be because God is being brought back to the center of their worship, of their lives. But then something happens. The ark, as it's rolling along on the cart, hits a bump. One of the oxen stumbles, it says, and Uzzah, probably one of the chosen men, reaches up to steady the ark so it doesn't fall, and boom, he is struck dead by God. We don't know what happened. We don't know if a lightning bolt come, came from the sky or if lasers came out of the ark, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. We don't know. But what we do know is that they knew God had done it, that God had struck him dead. In fact, David describes it in verse 8 as God bursting forth against Uzzah. He's struck down and he dies right there next to the ark. You can imagine the hush coming over that crowd at that moment. They're all singing in celebration. And then from the center out, this quietness, this silence, until all the crowd are standing silent. And the text says, and David is angry because of what God has done. Not, not at God, but because of what God has done. He doesn't understand this doesn't make sense. Why would God do this? Everyone was worshiping. He was doing a good thing, bringing the ark back. Uzzah was just trying to help. And his readers were kind of with him, aren't we? I mean, this doesn't, it's just one of those things in Scripture where you go, this isn't fair. This is wrong. God seems harsh. We don't like it. Maybe we'll just read on. Maybe we'll just reinterpret. Maybe we'll reject it. But we need to humble ourselves and realize that God actually knows better than us and doesn't need to justify himself before us because he is God. We need to humble ourselves and realize that his ways are just and right, even if we can't see and don't understand, because he is God. We need to humble ourselves and realize that God's ways at times are beyond our understanding because he is God. We need to trust him and learn. This is the nature of being his children. 
of being under his rule, of being a Christian. You see, David learned something that day. We see it in the next verse, and I think it's for us to learn as well. We see it in verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He learned that day, was reminded that day of the fear of the Lord. He says, how can the ark of God, the ark of God, my holy God, how can he come to me, to my city, to my people? It reminds me of Isaiah, right? When he was taken up into the presence of the Lord in heaven, and he sees God and he falls down and says, woe is me, I'm a dead man. Can't be in the presence of God. See, what was missing that day from Israelite worship, from their engagement with God as they tried to come into his presence with praise was fear, a proper fear of the Lord. We start to realize this when we understand some of the background to this text. You see, in, Deut- in, in Numbers 4 and in Deuteronomy 6, there's very specific rules given about the ark being moved. First of all, it was always to be moved covered in view of nobody, lest you look upon it and die. And I don't think it was covered. He wouldn't be able to touch it. It was also always to be carried on poles by the priests. There were actually rings on the ark for poles to slide through, and it was to be carried. What does it say in the text in verse 3 twice? How did they move the ark? And they carried the ark on a new cart. And you read through the end of the verse, and it says, and they were driving the new cart. They had a newfangled cart, and they were excited to put the ark on it. They weren't to look upon it. It was to be carried, and no one was to ever touch it lest they die. No look, no cart, no touch. The Israelites knew these regulations very well, but they show no regard. No fear as they ignore these rules. Yes, they are singing and joyous, but there is simultaneously this kind of casual flippancy as they engage with the very real presence of God. They presume everything will be fine even as they disobey. There's no awe, there's no reverence, there's no fear. Now, again, you may say, you know, I don't, I don't really like this idea of fearing God. I thought God was supposed to be loving and, and fatherly and gentle and compassionate, and he is. He is all those things. But he's also holy, and we are sinners. And he's also almighty, all-powerful, the Lord of hosts. That right there ought to scare the socks off any rational person. Think of the power of God and coming into his presence. We, we naturally get, fear, uh, you know, get fearful of, uh, of, of things we think are quite powerful. If a lion suddenly walked across, I don't think many of you guys would stay in your seats. We're afraid of things like that, even if we imagine they are powerful. When I lived in Australia, my wife and I went camping with the kids, 
And at night, we're in this little tent by the woods, and we start to hear this sound in the distance. It's kind of a snorting or croaking sound. At first, I thought it was bullfrogs. It's kind of... And it moves closer and closer and closer in the woods to our tent. My wife is like eight and a half months pregnant, something like that. I get the club from our car, and I'm, I'm squatting kind of in front of her with the tent. This thing is right in the woods outside. You can hear the breath. It's like... And it's going on. It's loud. I'm sweating. I'm there for like two hours until it sort of moves away. I'm finally relieved. We're safe. In the morning, I saw some of our Australian friends. I said, did you hear that last night? And they said, yeah. And they started laughing really hard. I said, what, 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 what was it? And they go, that was koalas mating. <laughs> I'm serious. They sound like grizzly bears. It's scary. Even if we imagine something is powerful and that it can hurt us, we will sweat with fear. Our God creates the beasts. He created the sun, that thing up there. I was reading about it this week. 27 million degrees at its core, equivalent in power to thousands and thousands and thousands of nuclear bombs, produces 38,460 septillion watts of energy per second. Our God made it, holds it in his hand, can snuff it out in a second. He's created the sun and every other supernova. That is the nature of who he is. I don't really care how loving he is. That should scare you. That should scare me. Add to this the fact of his infinite knowledge. His ways are ultimately unknown to finite people like us, which means we cannot predict his actions with our flawed minds. Add to this his perfect holiness and our sinfulness. This is scary. A powerful, unpredictable, uncontrollable God. And we come before him as sinners. Now some want to say, well, you know what, Carrie? I think that's the God of the Old Testament. You know, isn't, aren't things a little different with Jesus? Well, think of the demons when they came to meet Jesus. One of the few uh, beings that knew exactly who he was. They tremble in fear. Please don't destroy us. You're the Holy One of God. Think of the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. They're, they're afraid of the storm, and then Jesus calms it, snaps his fingers, and makes the weather go perfect. And what do they do? They're terrified. They move from being scared of the storm to terrified of Jesus because they get it. Think of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Real worship as as a people who are part of God's kingdom, a life where we're striving to engage with God with his very presence, must involve a healthy fear and a reverence of before God, or we just don't really get who he is. I found this verse in, in Hebrews 12 this week, Hebrews 12, 28, and I think it sums up exactly what's going on with the people here in Israel. Let me read it. It says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. They finally received their kingdom under King David, fought off all the Philistines. They got a kingdom that can't be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. What's the next words? With reverence 
and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation for our lives and our worship. And I think we need to park for just a minute and consider this. When it comes to worship in your life, both individually and corporately in our lives, are we perhaps a little overly casual before God? Are we presumptive before God? Are we about praising and singing and kind of a worshipful experience in the way I like it, but we're not real concerned about obedience in our lives as we come? And we don't think it matters that much? But it's no big deal? Do we need to repent of an overly casual attitude towards God, towards Jesus, our, our ruling king of our lives? Now, I have to say, there's a danger in, impli- in applying this. Because what does it actually look like in our lives as we come to worship to take the fear of the Lord seriously? Is it about a, a somberness of attitude as we come? Uh, a, a more emotionally repressed demeanor? Uh, should we come quietly and not wear jeans? Should we keep our kids from making too much noise because we take God seriously? Shh, children, God is a consuming fire. Is it about a more externally dignified form? Well, this is where the second part of our text, the second part of this story, is very helpful. Because if you remember, David left the ark at the home of Obed-Edom to see what would happen. Don't you, wouldn't you like to be Obed-Edom? He's like, it's like the, the food tasters for the king, right? Where it's like, hey, you try this first to see if it's poisoned. I'll leave the ark with you for a while, Obed. We'll see what happens. Well, we find out what happens, and that is Obed's family is actually blessed, and his whole household is blessed. And when David hears about it, he realizes, okay, we need to fear the Lord, but he does want to bless his people with his presence, and, and the coast is kind of clear, so he decides to give it a second shot. And in verse 12, they start to bring the ark to Jerusalem again. So let's read it this time, and tell me what is different about their approach this time, how their worship has changed. Let's read verse 12. And it was told King David that he told him about Obed-Edom and how it went well. And the Lord, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod so that David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So um, are they, uh, what's changed here? Are they still rejoicing? Well, yeah, they're rejoicing. David and the people are clearly celebrating. But along with it, there's something else that happens. Right? Let's see here. Uh, there is a, a, a carefulness uh, about obedience. The ark is now being carried. Note that it says it's borderline. It's no longer on the cart. And then 
there's a seriousness about their sinful condition. When they moved just six feet, they stopped. And David had sacrifices made, an ox and a fatted calf. I love this. They start out, let's go. And then it's like they barely move. And he goes, wait. And then he makes the sacrifice. It's like he's making a point. We can't go anywhere until we've made the sacrifices. He's making uh, a sacrifice of atonement. How? He answers his own question here from verse 9, right? He says, verse 9, How can the ark of God come to me, come to my people? How can it come? Only through atonement. Only by atonement for their sin being made can they come into the presence of God. It's an amazing moment. God's king is acting as a priest making sacrifice for sin so as people can come into the presence of their holy God. Does that remind you of anything? Does that foreshadow anything or anyone? And the picture gets even fuller and richer as David rips off his royal robes to don only his white linen ephod, the outfit of of priests, and of servants, by the way, and proceeds as the ark of the Lord comes to rest in this tent, this, this kind of temple. And he proceeds then to offer more offerings, more burnt offerings, a peace offering, and then brings all the people into this common meal of blessing before God, this common union. My friends, this is what a proper fear of the Lord looks like in action, in our worship. It looks like a seriousness about obedience and an awareness of our failure and sinfulness that drives us to our king and to our priest who has offered the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. It looks like hearts that continually come to Jesus in humility and confession and total dependence. This is why we strive in, in our in our small groups, and our growth groups, to be real about our sins and our failures so we can grow in obedience and the fear of the Lord. This is why we corporately confess our sin together every Sunday in that awkward rote way where it's written in the bulletin, but we're all saying it, admitting before everybody this is all of us. Remind each other of that we need forgiveness and that Jesus has brought forgiveness. The fear of the Lord should drive that. It's foundation of proper worship. And I want you to note that this does not squelch joyous, emotive, celebratory praise in worship. As they head towards Jerusalem, David doesn't say, now as we come in the fear of the Lord, let us move forward in, you know, in dignified, synchronized marching with our eyes to the ground, symbolizing our humility. That's not what happens. No, his joy and their celebration actually escalate, don't they? Look at verse uh, 14 and, and 15. This is what it says. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod so that David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with, ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. He's not only singing and shouting with his people, but now he begins to leap and dance as the ark is moving forward. The, the Hebrew word 
is actually about a whirling dance. He's whirling before the ark. And it says that he's doing it with all his might. Have you ever danced with all your might? Giving it everything you've got? He's going for it. That's, I think that's one of the reasons he stripped down to his linen ephod. So he could move. It's interesting, isn't it? It's an amazing scene. In fact, he is so in the moment in his worship dance that uh, he embarrasses his wife. Now, I've had this experience. It says in verse 16, these words, if I can manage to get there. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She is humiliated. She's embarrassed to the point of contempt. So that when he comes into the house to bring his blessing that he's just shared with all the people, she mocks him and scolds him for his shameless, vulgar behavior. Before the eyes of the servants, she says, Oh, you honored yourself, stripping down. She can't believe it. His worship was undignified for a king. His stripping down to his ephod was vulgar and, and debasing. According to her, he's acting like a common vulgar servant who, who strips his outer clothing so he can slave away and is not embarrassed about being half naked. He should be in his royal robes displaying his kingly glory. You see, for her, his worship actions and form should be shaped by what? By the fear of man, by what people will think, not by God, not by the fear of the Lord. She's missing the point completely. David has come to a proper fear of the Lord in his life, and it's brought his worship to his worship not only a seriousness about obedience and sin that looks to the Lord and his atoning sacrifice, but it's also brought an unhindered, joyous, selfless forgetfulness and humility. Look at how he answers his wife in verse 21. This is what he says. I'll start back and see here. Yeah, And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. He says, my worship is before God. It's unto him. And if my actions seem contemptible, then I will be even more contemptible. And if I look stupid in your eyes, then let me be stupider. And even if you don't get it, the servants you speak of, they will. Somehow he knows they will see the truth. I love it. He's just 
has just this absolute, unhindered freedom to come in humble, joyous worship before his holy God. You see, this is what the proper fear of the Lord does. It strips away the fear of man and the appearances before man. It actually allows us to truly worship, to worship in in freedom and flourish. Are we worshiping like this in our lives? And you know, as, as we kind of finish off this scene, I want to come back and, 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 and just mention one final note, one sh- more shadow of Christ here. David, as he brings his people into a worshiping fellowship with God, note that he does not consider his kingly rule a thing to cling to. But he strips himself of all his glory and he is despised and rejected and mocked. And he takes on the form of a servant. Does it remind you of anybody? This is how he is the king who is a priest for his people. Let us be like our king. Let's pray. Father, I, we thank you for this text. We thank you for challenging perhaps the casualness of how we approach you in our lives and in our worship. Help us to understand what it is to fear you and in that to find joy, in that to find the freedom to truly worship, to fear you more than we fear man and to serve you in humility with our lives. Pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.